Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Rod Wagner is a Forbes columnist and best-selling author of books on leadership and collaboration. Rod's books have been published in 10 languages, and his articles have appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, USA Today, ABC News, as well as The Globe and Mail in Canada. One of his books was even parodied in Dilbert. We are grateful that our relationship with Rod goes back some time, and with all that, we just call him Episode 52. So, Rod, <laughs> welcome back to Behavioral Grooves. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> yes, yes. Episode 52, man. Here we go. Here All he right. is. It's going to be so, on my tombstone, episode 52. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I feel bad for you. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll try to – this is episode 119, so maybe you'll get an extra one on there or something like that. So, extra. All episode. right. So, Rod, you are – an expert in leadership and a variety of other things, but you're also doing a lot of work on safety. And I think one of the things that has really befuddled me is that there are seems to be a lot of safety issues or concerns that is that are going on with this crisis that we're in. And a lot of people aren't paying much attention to some of the protocols that are in place. And just what are your thoughts on that? Is that a natural human response? Is it something that we're just missing because of this crisis? What do you think about that? Well, let me preface my remarks by making sure people understand that while I passed microbiology when I was an undergrad, I'm neither a virologist nor an epidemiologist because we're going to start talking about things that can keep you safe. And I would say defer to the experts there. But where I think I might be able to be useful is that um, there's a lot, I, I do a lot of work with Safe Start, and um, we spend a lot of time traveling, or at least we used to travel, uh, yeah. <laughs> to places where, where people are at serious risk of getting hurt or killed every day, and to be hurt or killed by something that they obviously can't see coming. Having ah. to deal with the unknown, what will happen today, and how can I be prepared for the unknown? And I do think that a number of those principles around the psychology of safety translate well to the age of coronavirus. Mm. Part of it is to appreciate the fact that you need to be prepared for the fact that you're going to go into a hazardous environment and you need to appreciate what you can do to dramatically reduce the risk 
So I, whether it's to have a car accident or to have some kind of an accident when you're scuba diving or rope climbing or working at a, at a oil plant, or in this case, and you won't know that you did it until four days, five days a week later, that, that you came in contact with the coronavirus and you transmitted it to yourself. Mm. And, yeah. and human beings aren't completely irrational. We don't completely disregard uh, risk opportunities, but there are plenty of times when we do. Do you think that there's some predictability about the kinds of risks that we're willing to sort of ignore? I think if you go deep down, we have some hangups with the whole idea of mortality. And we're not really rational about how we handle those risks. You'll see various responses to it. So you'll see people in industrial environments sometimes who say, oh, I'm not going to wear my safety goggles. I'm not going to wear my steel-toed boots because I've been doing it this way for 30 years and nothing has ever happened. I think for people who haven't worked in that kind of an environment before, um, aren't used to screwing their heads on properly relative to some kind of a risk, there can be the opposite reaction, that they just freak out. They, they completely panic. Now, there are people who say right now it's better to overreact than underreact, and so I'd take their guidance on that. And I'm not by any means suggesting you don't. Uh, practice social distancing or any of those kinds of things. But I, this is a controllable hazard. And I don't think we have to break into tears or hyperventilate or lose sleep. The lesson you would get from people who do really well in industrial environments and other hazardous environments is that you can substantially control the risk. And with that, it, I think some of the fear out there is, I think you brought it up earlier, is this uncertainty idea, right? We're, we're uncertain about the the scope of this. We're uncertain about a variety of factors that go into this. So when you're saying control the uh, the elements around this, what what does that look like for people? What what can we control? Um, from your perspective? Well, let's take some examples. We'll, we'll go outside of coronavirus for a second and look at some examples from other places. Um, I don't do any outdoor rock climbing, but I do indoor rock climbing um, frequently, or at least mm -hmm. I did before they closed my gym. But anyway, I'll be back to that when <laughs> I get a chance to do that. And there are certain procedures that you follow. When the first time I did it, I was really freaked out, even though I was three, three and a half stories up. That height really bothered me because I was not used to it. And I didn't feel confident in all the things I was doing, even though there was someone there to, to teach me how to do it. But before you go climbing up, you, you double check your harness, you double check your knot, you double check your carabiner. And if you're being belayed by someone, you check each other's equipment. Is my knot good? Yes, it's good. And once you go through that process, you're like, okay, we're, we're going to follow certain procedures as far as how we communicate and all that. And the true risk of an accident gets re reduced to just about zero. The same is true of scuba divers. They check their tanks. They check their equipment. They have a, a buddy there who has a, a backup breathing system. And so you're able to scuba dive exceptionally uh, safely, even though you're in an environment where as a mammal, unless you're a whale, you really don't belong there. 
Um, and and the, <laughs> right. the risks are, are fairly high. So I think relative to coronavirus, I think it is part of it is because we, we can't see the virus. And mm. it's a more lethal and more contagious virus than we have dealt with before. And yet we do have experts to rely on who can tell us what kills the virus, how you can make sure that you don't contract the virus. And if you follow those procedures, your chance of getting the coronavirus go down dramatically. You're talking about checklists, right? You're talking, you know, you think about pilots and scuba divers and rock climbers, they're using checklists. Would that be something that we might see more of around our home or around the office when it comes to safety? Yeah, I think we're moving in that direction anyway. Who last wiped the counter? When did you do it? Uh, when did you last wash your hands? Have you touched anything since then? Okay, I'm going to go to the grocery store. And now going to the grocery I go to the grocery store once a day, once every two days or something like that. Uh, but I approach it differently now. I, pro I approach going to the grocery store in the same way that I approach going into an industrial environment. So if I'm going to a, a oil and gas facility, for example, before I walk in, I make sure I have my safety glasses on, that I've got my hard hat on. In some cases, I'm wearing a high visibility vest. I'm wearing steel-toed shoes. And there's a whole bunch of signs as I go in there as to where the pedestrian walkways are. You want to go at a certain pace. You want to be, I uh, used to tell the kids that I coached in lacrosse, your head should be on a swivel. You should be constantly looking back and forth to make sure you are aware of what's going on around you. I find now that when I go to the grocery store, it's kind of the same thing, which is weird. <laughs> it is weird, right? It's stressful, isn't it? it the grocery stressful. store is compared to a a you know very dangerous work environment, industrial environment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the coronavirus is potentially fatal, so we have to treat yeah. it with that level, with not not hyperventilating. It's just to say, okay, I have control of of my environment. I have control of what I touch, and I have control of what I do after I touch things. So, okay, I'm going to um, wash my hands before I go to the store, and now I have to be very conscious. I'm not going to rub my eyes or you know nose sniffling or whatever my hands have to stay away from my head and from the time that I leave for the grocery store until the time that I come back you go to the grocery store you maintain a six foot distance for everybody the minute you start grabbing a, a carton of milk or something like that it's been handled by someone else and you have to assume that it's contaminated it probably isn't in the same way that when you get in your car and you put on your seatbelt, you have to assume that you're going to have an accident. Are you going to have an accident? Probably not. But you click your seatbelt in, not because you think you're going to have an accident right that minute, but because you know sometime during your life, you're probably going to have an accident. And if you always click in your seatbelt, you've guaranteed yourself that if you're in an accident, you will be strapped in. Well, the same thing is now true when we go to the grocery store. Is that carton of milk contaminated? No, but I'm going to assume it is. The, Barton, the carton of cream of wheat, we got a lot of cream of wheat in the house because I like that stuff. Um, and so, but let's assume that the boxes are contaminated. So as I go through, now I am, you almost have to think of it like a, a surgeon. As I go through the grocery store, I am I have to assume that I'm becoming contaminated with the coronavirus and I'm touching the touch screen at the self-checkout. All right, my hands are contaminated and it could be that my groceries are contaminated. So now I'm going to go back outside. I throw the groceries in the back of the car before I touch my steering wheel, little hand sanitizer. Now I'm carrying that every place I go so that I don't contaminate my steering wheel. Still not touching my head, face, any of that. 
come back home, bring in the groceries. We wipe them down on the, on the counter. I wash my hands and get myself back in the spot where I go, okay, I think I'm, I'm back inside my safe zone. I'm pretty sure there's we're, we've kept the, the house free of it. I think I'm in a safe zone. Now I can, and I've, I've washed my hands and all that. Now I can relax a little bit knowing that I've gone into a, a potentially hazardous environment I followed the proper protocols. Now going back out, uh, now not going back into the house. I'm okay. Rod, you you mentioned we have a number of experts that we can look to in this, and I know that you know you're a safety expert in industrial and other um, kind of areas around that. What happened? Why do people not listen? to experts. I think there's a little bit of a sport that we've had over the last few years of, isn't it fun or funny when the experts are wrong? We don't like the idea that we're uncomfortable with the idea that we do not know everything we need to know. I think in some cases, there's a very prominent example, I think, of someone who likes to pretend that he's the expert on everything. Um, <laughs> Gee, I wonder who you might be referencing there. <laughs> yes. Well, and 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 there's a, um, a doctor who I think gave an interview a day or two ago that said that, uh, yeah, I can't just push him out of the way and correct him all the time. But I, uh, there are certain people like, well, no, I, I have to be in control at all times and I have to know all things. Well, no, you don't. I There was this quote that... Um, the astronaut Scott Kelly had a fantastic piece in the New York Times about isolating. Since he spent a year in space, he said, here's what I learned about the psychology of it. It's really worth reading. And it's it's also kind of poetic when he talks about looking down at the whole earth and you don't see borders and you realize we're all in this together. But in there, he said, most problems aren't rocket science, but when they are rocket science, you should ask a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so I don't know if I have an answer for that. I don't know that I have an answer for that question because it it befuddles me. Well, but Uh, you do bring up this really interesting point where there are uh, now there are everybody is an expert, right? Because you have a a social media account and you have some followers that you somehow believe that you have this insight, knowledge, or you know, gut reaction. And so therefore I'm going to do it. And then these back of the napkin, you know, pieces, I, I, you know, I will tell you, I, there was a a friend of mine or an acquaintance of mine on, on Facebook who was talking, Oh, I don't know why everybody's getting all wild about this. There's only 20 cases in Iowa and I don't know any of them and nobody I know has coronavirus. And, you know, this was a, you know, a week ago. And I'm sitting there, but you don't understand. This is an exponential uh, crisis where it, it's, you know, because it's asymptomatic, because you can transfer it and you don't know it, those 22 cases are just the tip, 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 tip of the iceberg. And you're probably walking around with hundreds of people around you that are, are infected with this. And you will ultimately have a much bigger uh, scale. And I don't think they take all of that expertise into consideration because they're looking at their own little dynamic and thus, hey, I'm an expert in my own world. And it may be going back to your your example of the guy who I don't need to wear, you know, steel toed shows steel <laughs> steel toed shoes. My God, my my you, you got my there. Way to go. Are not connected. <laughs> there we go. But you know, because I've been doing this 30 years and I've never had an accident. Um 
I don't know. I'm pontificating on this at this point. I don't know if there's any question in there. Well, I, th- I think there's two pieces in there. One is the issue about expertise. And I, it does befuddle me when people don't rely on the the experts. We all have that one relative that we run into on Thanksgiving or whatever that'll that'll tell you how to solve all the world's problems. Oh, I'll tell you what they ought to do. And yes, you're right. Since with Twitter and Facebook and all that, we've decided that anyone that wants to have a publishing platform should be able to have one. And and many of them really shouldn't. Let's be honest. Uh, yeah. Um, they, they, I mean, the way they show a video of their cat, that's fine. But once they start telling you with no background in epidemiology, and in some cases, not even appreciation for exponential math, hey, it's no big deal. Just go out there. You can go to, I'm going to keep shaking hands and all that. Okay. They're just flat out wrong. And people who listen to their advice of the non-experts, they do so at their own risk. And so part of the what I would call the Zen of safety is to rely on experts. There's another piece in there, which is when in doubt, uh, defer to the safer side. So as this thing was going on, many of us were like, well, gee, I wonder if it's just kind of a super flu. I wonder if it's a really bad strain of flu and we can handle it like the flu. Clearly, as things have, have rolled forth, no, it's not. And anyone who, you know, if you're someone who's working in an industrial environment or you're a really good scuba diver or you're a really good private pilot or whatever, when in doubt, you would double check it to make sure. Or when in doubt, you would go with a decision that is most likely to keep you safe, to not take a risk and particularly to not take a risk when the scale of it is unknown. That doesn't mean you don't get out and do things. It means that you control for that particular issue. And and I suppose with the coronavirus, it actually does mean you don't go to that yoga class. Um, you don't gather in groups, things that we're learning um, along the way. I'd like to go back to something that we started talking about a little bit with the checklist, and that is work behaviors. How do you think work behaviors are going to change in the long run? I think we're going to discover that there's an awful lot that we can get done remotely. I think we may change how we design offices. I've started to wonder in the last week or so if the cubicle isn't dead. I've worked in a few cubicles that I would have been really frightened to swab and and put uh, that swab across a Petri dish and culture that because I think the fabric might have been there since 1983. (laughs) So maybe just on a general cleanliness basis, maybe some of those cubicles weren't the best place to work if you had allergies or anything like that. But now with... um, coronavirus, I think this will change office design for a long period of time, that if cubicles still exist, they will be higher cubicles and they'll have glass partitions, much like, um, where did I see? One of the grocery stores had put up a glass partition between the cashier and the uh, people who were- uh, IV. Yes. Yes. I think that will become more common. I think we'll space out more. We'll work from home more. And I wonder if the handshake, I don't know if the handshake is dead, but I think it's going to be on hiatus for two or three years. We'll 
do the namaste bow. We'll do the, the Star Trek live long and prosper. We'll foot tap. We'll elbow bump. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that we will be shaking hands anymore. Or if we do, we'll, be, we'll have hand sanitizer. And it won't be considered rude to shake someone's hand and immediately squirt hand sanitizer into your hands. We, we want to touch each other. We want to say hello and be in contact. It's very human to want to do that. But now I think we're also building this thing that when you do go to the grocery store or wherever you stay six feet away, you can see people, they just kind of, they nod and they smile and then they move away from you as though you hadn't showered. Well, just in the grocery store, I've seen, uh, again, pictures of of some places where they're putting little nudges where they have little floor decals that are indicating six feet apart for people when they're waiting in line uh, at the checkout counter and various different things. So I think to that point, we might get to a, a new norm where that is what's expected and that's how we behave. I was surprised at how far people were apart when I was there. They're just naturally spacing out. It's considered the new, the new politeness. I, I think that we might also, and this goes along the lines of the, the Zen of safety, there's People who are have learned to work in a very dangerous environment practice a sort of mindfulness. Mindfulness. I don't mean the yoga mindfulness. You know, feel your breathing and sense the space you're in and all that. That's all cool. But it's a related version of that. Is how am where am I right now? What is my state of mind? Um, am I going too fast? Am I not recognizing what I'm doing? Am I touching the screen and then touch my face? Um, am I getting too close to people? Um, am I good and healthy and, and going, and what is the situation that I'm in? And that will now include in, the, in, in a regular safety environment, you have the question of, do I have moving parts around me? Is there a forklift here? Is there a, a chemical hazard? Am I around pressurized lines or ammonia or anything like that? And if it would, would leak, which way would I go and all that, that people who work in industrial environments do this all the time. And now we will all start to have that mindset to say, where am I? Is this a potentially contaminated environment? What am I touching? How far am I away from things? And am I going anywhere near my head with my hands when I have not washed my hands? That will, that will be the new normal if it isn't already. I was just thinking about, we, we talked with Annie Duke. And she had mentioned this idea of hedging and that we're not very good at hedging. Uh, and, and when you were talking earlier about, you know, the, the changes that we're going to make and the, the things that we can do right now, the, they're part of almost a hedge, right? You're, you're, you're taking these precautions. Again, the likelihood, like you said, of picking up a milk carton in, in the grocery store and that being contaminated is relatively small. But there is that slight chance that it is contaminated and that, if you do grab it and you don't wash your hands or you touch your eyes after doing that, that you can get um, that you can get infected. And so, doing all these things is really a hedge against you know having the the negative outcome, which is a pretty significant negative outcome of catching the virus and either getting sick yourself or or getting somebody else uh, sick with the virus. So I'm wondering if from that perspective. If, if people are taking enough hedges in this, in this time, or are we just going about kind of in denial of the ostrich effect of being, you know what, 
nope, this isn't this isn't because it is so unseen um, that we don't even have any of those aspects going on. I, the, the transmission rate would suggest that we're not doing everything that we need to do, that there is enough carelessness in the system or lack of awareness that we're continuing to transmit the disease. And that can have some really terrible effects on the capacity of the healthcare system, on healthcare workers themselves and and the risk that's presented to them, never mind having to dash back and forth and have having to make terrible choices. So uh, as, a, as a population, no, we're not. As individuals, some certainly are. I'm not, I, I am concerned, not overly concerned because I'm okay. trying to adapt everything that I know to how I interact with people with whom I'm interacting and and those kinds of things. So I think it's important from an individual standpoint, as you read the headlines in the newspaper, watch TV, and you see that th- this thing is spreading, to not think, oh, it's inevitable that I'm going to get this. It is inevitable that you are going to walk by it. It is probably inevitable that you are going to get it on your hands at some point. It is inevitable that it might be on your on your grocery bag or 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 on a handle in in your house or something like that. It's not inevitable. But it, you don't get, from what I understand right now, you do not you do not get coronavirus through your hands. You get it when it comes in contact with your eyes, your nose, your mouth, somewhere around your head. So if you just think like that, well, at any point in time, I might I, I'm, I'm, I might be in contact with this, but it's controllable, and I'll just keep hand washing. I'll wipe down the handles. I'll wipe down my steering wheel. Which I don't know what the new name for this is. Because six months ago, it would have been called germophobia. Germophobia, by definition, is an irrational fear of germs. I don't know. Maybe you gentlemen would know this. What does one call the rational fear of a virus? Fear. Uh, yeah, fear. <laughs> Health, healthy fear, yes. <laughs> or, irrash- or, or rational concern, maybe, because we're trying not to yeah, speak. Rational concern yeah. and taking the proper steps. It's a new it's a new environment and we have to have new ways of living. Yeah, at least for the, for the short-term future, right? Until there is a vaccine. And at some point, you know, this, while it is more contagious than and 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 has a higher fatality rate than influenza at some point we will have herd uh immunity to it we'll have vaccines we'll have cures and and life can go back to a more normal semblance of this and we won't need to be as vigilant around it but until that time comes you're absolutely right because when we don't do those things and we do put ourselves and others in danger, the danger, again, isn't so much that, hey, a healthy young person is going to get sick and, and be put you know, in the hospital, although that's more happening more than, than what we had first anticipated with this. But it's the idea that we over flood the hospital system. And by over flooding the hospital system, you are endangering not only those people that have coronavirus and need ventilators and other aspects of it, but anybody else that's in there, the, the healthcare workers that are out there that have to go in day in and day out, uh, the other people who are in there for cancer treatment or cardiac uh, you know, elements or whatever other disease that they have. So it's it's the larger scale that this is just, you know, one 
drop, it's that ripple effect, and those ripples are pretty big in this case. There's well, um, people need to be acting in a greater good sort of a. They they need to adopt. Uh, I'm willing to do this for the greater good at some point, or to some degree. Yes, I, I agree. Um, I think we're seeing already that some young people are being affected by this, mm-hmm. um, and. So no one is completely out of the woods. Plus, what kind of a person are you if you're like, well, it's not going to get me, so I don't mind if I transmit it along. There's another reason to think about this yeah. relative to self-interest, and that is um, Minnesota's governor the other day was talking about, he made an allusion to the healthcare system and things that we rely on the healthcare system just in general. Uh, things happen to people who are 18, 19, 20. They get in accidents sometimes. Well, think about this. This would be a really bad time to get in an accident because you're going to go to a hospital mm-hmm. where they're going to have to gown up a whole lot more to not give you the coronavirus. You may be, um, you may be, your immune system may be compromised if you get yourself in an accident. And so the coronavirus could be a, a complicator. And by the way, they might be a little bit busy and they might not be able to give you all the care that you would normally get if you got yourself in an accident. So I think, yes, very much so. We are recognizing that we are in this together. The other thing I think that is important that doesn't necessarily come intuitively to people, Kurt, you kind of refer to this as the issue of um, how eventually things will catch up with you. It's it's not technically true that your luck runs out. I mean, that's just not how probabilities work. But there's something that's kind of close to that, which is cumulative probabilities. Yeah. Uh, if you think about how many times we go out and do something that's potentially hazardous, and the most common thing is driving. A lot of studies on safety are done on driving because everybody drives and there's tons of statistics on it. And if you think about how many times you go out and drive, it's thousands and thousands over the course of, of your life. And if you run those probabilities, it turns out that that third decimal point behind the percentages, like 99.992% safe, 99.996% safe. If you run those over thousands, you see a dramatic difference in the curve of the cumulative probabilities. In other words, if you if you can drive 99.996% safe, the odds of you having an accident sometime during your life are dramatically lower than if you're a 99.992% safe driver. And you might say, really? That like that's going to make that much of a difference? Yeah. Repeated over and over and over again, the cumulative probabilities yeah. are tremendously different. And to some degree, we're doing the same thing in a faster a much faster environment with the coronavirus. Okay, can you remove 99.9999% of the virus that comes around you? Or are you just going to re- remove 99.993% of the virus? Well, that second one, it's much more likely that, and it only takes one uh, one little virus, one of those is going to get through and you're either going to be a carrier or you're going to get yourself sick. It sounds it sounds obsessive. That sounds really obsessive to me. Even as a safety professional, that sounds really obsessive. And yet, that's those are the facts that we're dealing with right now because we're trying to fight a virus. Well, and and to your point, you're talking about cumulative probabilities over time. You can also use the similar kind of facet when you're looking at cumulative probabilities over populations. And so, because you you have, you know, 7 billion plus people in this world and it's transferring across the globe, 
330 some million in the United States, all of a sudden those those little tiny, you know, third decimal place points make a huge difference when you talk about that. And that's what people are talking about when they're talking about, you know, controlling, you know, lowering the curve and doing various different things is just that. It's at those ends of the of that probability piece that you're looking at. So, you, you know, you mentioned um, that, well, for the time being, we have to be like this. I'm planning to do it for the foreseeable future and maybe for the rest of my life. And here's why. Mm. Um, the virus is going to be in circulation for a long time. They're talking about 18 months until they can get a vaccine. And yeah, it might be earlier than that, but let's let's assume that that's a pretty good estimate. You gentlemen are experts on habit formation. Think about doing something for 18 months and what that's going to do for habit formation, how we live, how we work, how we interact with each other. That's long enough that you probably have changed things for good or that it's going to take a long time to relax. And quite frankly, that's the posture we have to take until we know that there's a vaccine or it's just very rare, that it goes back to its rarity that it had. You know, if you said something about SARS or MERS or something like that six months ago, people would say, oh yeah, I know it's sometimes out there, but I'm not really worried about catching it. I don't think we're going to get to coronavirus being at those levels for a long time. I was, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate of balance and well-being and i've become increasingly convinced that maybe i should take some of the advice that i hear from other people about these kinds of things so to <laughs> kind of stay sane the other day i fired up a hockey game it turned out that the nhl blessed them they made all of their games on their on their app you can go back and watch any of the games from the season so i thought man i really need to watch a hockey game so i fired it up it was it was blackhawks versus sharks i didn't really care about the outcome but i just want to watch a hockey game and uh the first thing that struck me when I was watching it was get away from each other. What are all you people doing in that arena? You're going to get sick. And that game was two and a half weeks ago. And I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, no, no, you can't do, you can't get all get together like that. The world has changed so dramatically. Yeah. And I'm afraid Unfortunately, that's just the way it is. We are all going to have to have a, a safety mindset relative to the virus for the foreseeable future. We are going to have to think like a scuba diver, a rock climber, a private pilot, someone working in a steel mill, the same way that they approach their hazardous work, we are going to have to approach how we interact with our environment relative to the coronavirus. So... Gosh, that that just makes me think about the time that is invested in doing something to, to make it become a habit. If if President Trump is successful in basically what he says, opening up America for business in another week or so, and hoping that this all goes away, how much of the habits are going to stick if we haven't had that much time to really develop uh, routines? they're going to stick one way or another. So here there's two paths. One is that let's to whenever we decide that we're going to continue to interact, I'm dying to be with people more than we are right now, but I also understand the, the risks involved. But at some point, whether sooner or later, we're going to loosen up and we're going to go back to the office and there will be hockey games and there will be all these things again. There's two ways that we can play this. One is that we have learned new ways of behavior 
And so we shake hands and then we sanitize or we elbow bump or we namaste bow or whatever it is that we do to make sure that we can control the transmission rate. And it turns out that we are, we are allowed almost like the virus being a, a very directive first grade teacher, you know, okay, you are allowed to play together because you are all sanitizing well and, and you are making sure you're not spreading the virus. That's one way. The other is that we loosen things up and, and we don't practice a safety mindset and it just comes back and we yeah. have to go back into quarantine. So this is, we don't have a choice. This isn't something you can negotiate with. You can only either follow the rules or have the consequences of, of not following the rules. I think it's interesting. If you look back at the reaction people had after 9-11, and I remember flying on some flights relatively soon after 9-11 happened. And there was a different perspective in the people getting on the plane. We were looking out. We were being more cautious. We were, look, is anybody looking like they're going to pull out a knife? Whatever it would be. Over time, that shifted. That no longer do I have that same vigilance when I get on a plane of looking to see if there's a terrorist on there. However, we have put in place from a uh, rules and policy and legal perspective, a whole number of checkpoints up before we have TSA, we have a number of things you can't, you got to take your damn shoes off. You got to, you know, you can't take liquids. All of those factors that are going in to help us stay safer in those situations. And I think there, if again, to Tim, your point of being short, it's going to be more rule. To your point, Rod, I do believe that this is something virus doesn't care. It's going to come back. And, and if we're not, you know, smart about this, it's just going to come back and and then we're going to be pushed into this for even longer. Um, but even 18 months sometimes. I'm not sure, uh, again, if you're forced into into these types of behaviors and it's not a self in, self-willed self piece, how much of that behavior change is going to stick. It will for some people. For other people, they're going to actually be defiant against it because now that I don't have to do it, God damn it, I'm not going to do it, right? Because I was forced to do this. It wasn't myself being able to choose. So I think there's going to be a, this component of when this is all done that, yes, there are going to be some things that, that get shifted. Some are going to have to be more of a procedural aspect. You know, do you go through, we go through metal detector gates when we go into, uh, you know, an NBA game now, are they going to have a thermal kind of thing where they take your temperature? And if you have a fever, you can't go in. It, it could be such things like that coming out of this. Those are things to be determined, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting as we think there, about that. Well, you know, there's a, there's an interesting thing that I notice when I go to um, facilities that have forklifts and pedestrian traffic in the same zone. Pedestrians are supposed to be given the right of way because in a pedestrian forklift accident, the pedestrian loses. But because, but because the pedestrian loses, what ends up happening is that the pedestrians will step back and wave the forklift through because uh, you could be what they call dead right. You were right. You had the right of way, <laughs> but you're still dead. 
And so I think the same thing kind of thing applies here. For example, before they shut down the coffee shops here, I was carrying disinfecting wipes. I know the coffee shops were being exceptionally diligent to to wipe down everything with a Clorox rag and all that. But unless I saw them wiping it down, I don't know that. So I now have to verify and I'd go in and now look like a gerbophobe, but it's not an irrational fear anymore. And I wiped down the workspace around me before I sat down to be able to control my environment. That's going to be, for those that do not want to get this, that's going to be the new normal. And we we will have to be more conscious of what's going around us, but part that's part of being a safe individual. And I think part of that then can translate into other areas. If you're vigilant about that, you can also be more, more vigilant about the things that more commonly would um, injure us. Someone gets killed out on Lake Minnetonka uh, you know, once or twice you know, every month or every two months during the summer here in Minnesota, because something happened with the you know boat props and you had the drowning risk and all that kind of stuff. The same kind of principles that we're using to make sure that we're aware of what's going on around and keeping the coronavirus away from us are all those same kinds of things that can ensure that we're not in a traffic accident, a boating accident, a drowning that we, that if you decide to work on the electrical system in your house, that maybe it's not rocket science, but you might want to call an electrician. Um, and, and so, you know, if we get anything out of this, hopefully we get an appreciation for how much we want to be around each other, how important our social connections are, um, how and and also what we owe to each other in the way of a, a duty not to infect, but also when you're driving, not to run the stop sign or whatever. We kind of that's that's supposed to be how we operate. And maybe we kind of take a deep breath and say, OK, yeah, I get it at some we never like to face this. I'm mortal. Someday I'm going to die. But I can control to a large extent the hazards that might cut my life short, whether that's coronavirus or that's kind of a, a or, or it's a traffic accident or, or some other thing like that. And it's kind of reassuring. It's kind of nice to know that you're in control, particularly at a time like this when we're likely to freak out. Rod, thank you. This uh, has been very informative and your insights i think are valuable to everybody listening and you may have just saved a few people's lives who knows so thank you uh well they will save their own lives this is just advice (laughs) right but it's good to be with you and i i look forward to whenever it is that we can get together back in person again yes we do it'll be so nice yes yes but thanks rod thanks Welcome to the special edition grooving session where Tim and I groove on some of the key ideas and concepts that were inspired by our conversation with Rod. All right, Tim, what what did you get inspired by or what do you want to groove on? Uh, I'd like to start with a rant. <laughs> a rant? <laughs> yes. You can start with a rant. Is I suppose that okay? that's okay. Uh, when, when Rod said we are usually killed by things that we didn't see coming, I was like, oh, that was such a great idea. That was such a great concept that made me think it's so we are so good at ignoring things that <laughs> that could kill us, basically. We're laughing at things that can kill it's us terrible. and how we ignore them. But yeah. it, it, but we're laughing, or I'm laughing because it's so true. The the idea yeah. that we are so easily just put the blinders over our eyes to 
reality and live in a la la land where none of this happens. And I think part of that is because the probabilities are so low and the outcome so severe yes, that it just yeah. is, uh, do we live our life in fear this whole time? Well, just you know? like the, the probability of getting into a car accident is pretty, yeah. is generally speaking, pretty low. So, right. but we wear seatbelts every time we get in the car. It's well, a requirement. It's a requirement. Oh. Before they were a requirement, did you wear seatbelts? Hell no. No, I I didn't. You, you know, you know when I started to wear a seatbelt is that I actually did a program uh, with my race car driving brother-in-law yes. uh, who we hung out with race car drivers and we were driving, you know, these really nice cars doing what's called a, a ride and drive program, but basically these cool cars on tracks and through the country and different things. But those race car drivers, every single one buckled up every time yeah. because again, they're more, they, they understand, you know, they've gotten into probably every single one of them has gotten into an accident or, or two, and they understand the the value of those safety belts. And I just saw how crazy of drivers they were. And so I realized I might be a perfectly great driver, but if one of those guys is around me, it's going to just be crazy. Well, the, were, so, these, were these dangerous situations? I mean, did you feel like the, the this environment that you were driving in, was it more dangerous than just being on the road? When I was driving with the with the crazy uh, yeah, race car yeah. drivers, oh yeah. hell yeah, yeah, it was okay. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> right. they were driving in the median, knocking over cones, passing oh. people, getting mad because the minivan that we rented was topped out at ninety six miles per hour or whatever it was. That you found that out. on the interstate, you know, <laughs> okay. and variety. Of, it's a whole another story that we don't need to well, go into. No, but I'm, but but well, the context but matters, right? Context matters, and so that experience changed me. It changed how I uh, looked at seatbelts. I no longer looked at them as oh, this thing that just is sitting there in the car because, you know, some government regulation made car manufacturers put it in there. I go, no, those could save my life someday because, you know, someday there might be another one of these crazy race car drivers that's driving on the road next to me and passes in the median and throws up a cone that hits my, you know, windshield and I freak out. So I'm I'm wondering, do is this situation analogous to that? That we are so scared by the situation that we will start, you know, just adopting some of these things, or will we need to have regulation? Like you said, you didn't start really start wearing seatbelt until you know it was against the law not to. That's exactly my question. Even in the context that you experience that oh, that oh my god moment like i'm i'm going to start wearing seatbelts the context changed you don't drive with crazy race car drivers all the time now you're just a regular driver out on the road so the context is really different today but that experience changed your life and that might be a good analog for where we're at today that might be a good way of thinking about a, a lot of habits that we're developing right now could carry over Based on this this N of one that we've got sitting here, <laughs> it is it literally the, is this video. N of one, and and if you look at most of the research around that, an N of one isn't going to change your behavior. So, 
yes, it may be frightening enough and severe enough and vivid enough that this does. And so we adopt some more safety focused behaviors. Mm -hmm. However, I don't necessarily believe that that is going to be the case across the board for everybody. I think people are interpreting this differently already. We see that going on. And so some people are saying that's overkill and other people are saying we're not doing enough. And so you have two divergent yeah. groups of, of beliefs out there. And we know that once a belief gets formed, you know, it's just going to be reinforced. And some of these behaviors that we need to adapt uh, fall into, you know, either side of that camp of beliefs. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, what caught your attention in our conversation with Rod? Cumulative probabilities add up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's math, do, baby, math. Let's let's do the math because, you know, both of us are just total math geeks. Right? <laughs> I wish I was a math geek. <laughs> I really do wish I was a math geek. I wish I understood math better than I do. But I yeah. do understand some simple just multiplication, right? And so uh, we we went through the, the trouble of of running out some calculations. Yeah. Um, and so please correct us, if, listeners, if our math is wrong, because Tim and I, this is not necessarily our strongest suit. <laughs> no. uh, but the difference between 99.96% and 99.99% um, for one person is pretty immeasurable, right? Yeah, it, incredibly immeasurable. Right. right? I mean, it, that means how many times do you have to do that same behavior over and over and over again for it to make a meaningful difference? Not, you know, you'd have to do that a lot. But if you apply that to 350 million people, which is about the population, give or take a couple million uh, of the United States, that's 105,000 people. Yeah. Yeah, 105,000 people. That's the size of, you know, a big, you know, suburb within a, a, a major metropolitan. It's the size of, you know, it's bigger than the town that I grew up in. Um, wow. You know, so you think about that. This is that's a pretty amazing thing. And if you, you extrapolate that out to 7 billion people, which we didn't do the math. But, you know, that's uh, it, the numbers million. Just get bigger. You're, yeah. you're getting into the millions. So. Yeah. And, and so if we relate that back to the way the, the difference between the death rate of influenza A is 0.1 percent mm -hmm. and the estimated death rate right now, or the current what we're running at for coronavirus is about 1.2 percent in the United States. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, the, the flu kills 63,000 people a year, but. But if we multiply that times 12, that difference between <laughs> 0.1 and 1.2, that's 750,000 people dying. That's yeah. a that's a big damn number. Yeah. So so these cumulative probabilities, I think you're right that we are undervaluing the potential hazard of of a virus that we don't have a remedy for. We don't have uh, anything to mitigate it. We don't have anything to stop it. We don't have a cure that it's going to run rampant unless we take measures to, to to do what we can from a social perspective, from habits and changes in our daily lives, right? Yeah, that is spot on. I mean, when you think about this and you think about 
Well, what difference does it make? Well, if it makes a little bit of difference on that tail end of 99.96 versus 99.99, that can be a huge difference in the ultimate uh, impact that this has. So we need to be concerned. And, And if people are going, well, how much difference does washing my hands make or how much difference does it matter if I stay six feet away from people or socially isolate? You make a difference in those tail ends of that larger probability that cumulative probabilities add up. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that gets back to a greater good thing that we, that we need to think beyond just ourselves. And well, and, and to that. this degree, and we've, we've talked about this. I don't know if we've talked about it on air or not, but the virus doesn't care, right? Oh, right, right. Yeah. You, you know, the virus doesn't care if it's you or me or somebody else. The virus is just the virus. The virus is going to impact all of this. So when we, you know, look at this and go, well, I can't have an impact Yes, you can. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said, we're not on our timeline. We're on the virus's timeline. Yeah. Uh, In kind of a metaphorical way to say, it's really not about us having goals and objectives. It it needs to be strategies. It needs to be execution of good strategies to, to mitigate something that is way beyond our control. Well, and, and, and we have to listen to the safety or the health experts on this. Right. We need to be able to realistically go with the the reality that is on the ground. This isn't something that we should be running off and judging by our gut feel, uh, making decisions because, well, it feels like it's going to be okay. We yeah. need to listen and and adhere to what the experts are telling us. And granted, we can be cynical about what those experts are telling us and cynical from the way of saying, let's make sure we're questioning them and that we're not just blindly, we're not outsourcing our critical thinking, as Christian Hunt said. Exactly. That we are actually, you know, utilizing our brains in thinking, you know, through this in system one or our, you know. Logical our system thinking. two thinking. Our system two thinking. Right. Caroline Webb yeah. talked about intentionality and being deliberate. I love the way she talks about system two as being deliberate thinking, and that's that's an important thing. I don't want to end the conversation without talking about the impact of future office design. All right. Okay. Because so you think Rod's <laughs> vision of glass cubicles and everybody working from home is going to be a, a reality? Not so much. <laughs> I, and the reason that I, I think that some of some of the potential uh, tactics that could be implemented to reduce uh, or to increase safety, I think are just going to cost too much money or perceived as costing too much money by the corporate leaders that I think they'll be much more willing to say work from home. That's a great idea. Like new infrastructure for for. Wi-Fi or work from home or whatever kind of intranet stuff. Let's put some money into that. Brand new glass-sided cubicles. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't see them making changes on all clean, hard surfaces that are easily uh, disinfected. That's hard for me to imagine because of the the cost reward ratio. I could see it happening in new builds. I can see it happening if you're building a new office structure. Mm-hmm. I don't see companies going in and retrofitting that. Again, I think it's because 
safety, while it's top of mind right now, is not normally top of mind for many leaders and organizations. This is not just that big of deal when we think about the normal germs that we might get spread around. And unless this stays, and who knows if this morphs and changes and this a whole new reality of how we live in a virus-filled world that could kill us at a much higher rate than what we're accustomed to, maybe then, but for the near future where this goes away at some point, and we fall back into just a normal everyday virus-infected world where we get colds and flus, I don't yeah. see companies really saying that that is going to warrant the amount of money that it would cost to retrofit my office with that. We might have more hand sanitizers available. You might have yeah. more hand sanitizer yeah. across the, the piece. You might have more signs up saying, wash your hands. But I, I don't think you're right. I, I, I don't see companies doing that. I had a conversation yesterday with a, with a good friend of ours uh, from the cleaning industry. He works for a company that has industrial cleaning crews, and they clean stadiums and arenas, as well as corporate office sites. And they have large contracts with global firms. And he said that some the companies are responding very differently uh, to this. He named a bank that that I, I won't name and said that they kind of have uh, uh, an attitude of, well, just come in and get your damn job done. You know, uh-huh. stop disrupting us. You know, we're we're cleaning twice a day rather than one time a day. So that means your your crews are getting paid a lot more by us. So but just get it done. And other companies, and I will name this one, a retailer, Target Corporation at the corporate headquarters is having the office cleaned twice a day and they're offering the employees of this guy's company an extra $2 an hour to come in and clean because they know it's sort of hazard it's hazard pay it's it's hazardous work wow and they're being very proactive for a contract that they proactively offered to pay more to people who were willing to come in and do that cleaning. And I thought that's a really cool thing. That's a very pro-social thing to do in a, in a capitalistic world where they didn't need to. They just didn't need to do that because the contract was already stipulated. I, I am uh, pleasantly surprised a number of times at some of the positive pro-social things that individuals, people, organizations are doing. It's one of the bright lights that has come out of this whole craziness is that you actually get to see, you know, people being good and great gracious and thinking out for people beyond themselves. And I think that's really rewarding. And I think it's really hopeful. Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I'm at T. Houlihan and Kurt is at what motivates. We really do love hearing from you. And this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. 
One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands. Wash your hands.